I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Megan Williams. And I'm Samira Moyadin. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, blast radius. After twin bombings in Iran leave dozens dead, one watcher lays out the possible perpetrators of the attacks and the potentially explosive fallout. Exit strategy. Canada says it will help the extended family members of Canadian citizens to get out of Gaza, but they're capping the number of visas at 1,000, which our guest says will leave hundreds of families in the lurch. Faceless accusations. A woman is suing Hershey for millions of dollars after she bought a Reese's peanut butter pumpkin that was missing the jack-o'-lantern face promised on the packaging. Black and white and red all over, the earliest version of Mickey Mouse just entered the public domain, and a Canadian horror film director already has a Mickey slasher movie ready to go. The final, final frontier, the family of a late Vancouver woman who loved Star Trek says she would be thrilled to know her ashes are about to blast off into deep space. And the taste of victory. A 10-year-old in Edinburgh was so bereft at the loss of her favorite crisps that she convinced the company behind them to bring back their haggis and black pepper flavor. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that understands some corporate decisions leave Munch to be desired. They gathered to pay tribute to the dead and instead became victims themselves. As you've been hearing in the news, roughly 100 people are dead and dozens more injured after two bombs exploded at a memorial event for a top Iranian commander in Kerman, Iran. According to officials, the bombs were planted in suitcases and remotely detonated near a cemetery as a procession of people gathered to mark the fourth anniversary of the U.S. assassination of Qasem Soleimani. Today's attack comes a day after several Hamas leaders were killed in an explosion in Beirut, raising fears of a wider regional conflict. Ali Vaez is the Iran project director with the International Crisis Group, a conflict resolution think tank. We reached him in Washington, D.C. Ali, how unusual is it for Iran to see an attack of this scope and, and scale? It is not entirely unheard of that terrorist attacks occur in Iran. Uh, we know, for instance, in 2018, there was an attack by ISIS on an IRGC parade in the southwestern province of Khuzestan, in which uh, 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 two or three dozen people were killed. And there have been tit-for-tat clashes with some separatist groups in the province of Baluchistan in Iranian, in Iran's southeast. Mm-hmm. Um, and there have also been ISIS attacks uh, in the central province of Fars, so these things have happened before, but uh, there have never been such a high number of uh, fatalities and casualties. This attack took place as Iranians gathered to commemorate the death of General Soleimani, who was killed four years ago by a U.S. drone strike. What do you make of the timing of today's attack? Was it symbolic? Was it opportunistic? It is certainly opportunistic because uh, there is a large gathering of ordinary people um, and that provides soft targets for whoever wanted to uh, inflict this kind of uh, damage on Iran. Uh, But uh, the timing uh, also depends on who was behind it. If indeed uh, this was Israel, which is one of the potential culprits here, 
it comes uh, as part of a pattern of uh, Israeli actions uh, against Iran and its allies in the region. Uh, last week, uh, Israel killed an, a senior uh, Revolutionary Guards commander in Syria, uh, General Mousavi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, just yesterday, uh, Israel assassinated a senior Hamas leader in Beirut, in Lebanon. Uh, and if this is, in fact, part of that uh, uh, pattern, it is a signal to Iran that Israel can go after its interests and assets, uh, not just in the region, but also on Iranian soil. Um, but if it is uh, ISIS or uh, an Iranian separatist group, um, I think the timing is just because they believed this is a moment of opportunity with Iran being mostly focused on what's happening in Gaza and uh, rising tensions with the U.S. and Israel, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and saw this as a moment of opportunity with Iranians looking the other way. Uh, to uh, basically retaliate for some of the actions that Iran has taken against ISIS or against these separatist groups in the past. As of this conversation, no group has claimed responsibility. But who do you think might be behind them? It's very hard to say because uh, this uh, attack certainly does have the hallmarks of the kind of attacks that ISIS uh, would usually perpetrate. But, um, uh, you know, one of the reasons that it's hard to imagine uh, at this moment that it, it was ISIS is also because ISIS usually very quickly claims responsibility uh, for its terrorist attacks in Iranian soil. Mm-hmm. Um, it does not have uh, Israeli fingerprints on it. Um, but at the same time, uh, we are in our char- uncharted territories in the sense that uh, uh, Israel... Uh, obviously is on high alert, and because of uh, the horrible uh, October 7th attack uh, by Hamas, which Iran has been supporting for many, many years, uh, Israel has an interest uh, in trying to uh, uh, inflict uh, as much uh, cost on Iran uh, as possible. Um, uh, So it's too early to say, but uh, I think in the next few days we would probably learn, because Uh, Iran usually does not uh, keep these things under wraps. Uh, It points fingers and uh, it would uh, promise uh, serious retaliatory action. Right. I mean, the the U.S. State Department says it was not involved in any way and that there's, quote, no indication that Israel was either. Um, do, Do you see anything that sways you one way or another about Israel's possible involvement? No, so far there is no uh, evidence, uh, uh, reliable, uh, concrete evidence, one way or another, that would indicate uh, Israeli uh, involvement. But uh, but if Israel is involved, uh, then uh, it could be seen as a as part of a campaign of maximum provocation. Really, in the past few days, because what we have seen from Iran and its allies uh, in the axis of resistance, these non-state uh, militant groups in Iraq, Syria, uh, Lebanon, and Yemen, uh, has been a uh, an incremental uh, escalation against uh, U.S. and Israeli interests in the mm-hmm. region. Um, but if Israel has an interest in trying to expand the conflict, then one could say that the, the pattern of attacks in the past uh, week or so uh, indicate an effort uh, aimed at uh, provoking Iran to commit a mistake. And that mistake could result in expanding the war and possibly dragging the U.S. into a direct confrontation uh, with Iran. And take into account that all of this is happening at a time that Iran's nuclear program uh, is closer than ever to the verge of nuclear weapons. So the interest of trying to stop that uh, that program from crossing the Rubicon towards weaponization is also higher than ever. Okay, well, we'll be following that. Thanks very much, Ali, for speaking with me. My pleasure. Thank you. Ali Vaez is the Iran Project Director with the International Crisis Group. We reached him in Washington, D.C. Starting next week, the Canadian government will attempt to help citizens' extended family members flee the violence in Gaza. 
The new immigration program announced late last month came after Canadians with extended family in Gaza, such as siblings and parents, pleaded with the government to help them. At the time, Canada was only helping immediate family, like spouses and young children. But the new plan comes with a cap, 1,000 visas. And the National Council of Canadian Muslims says that doesn't go nearly far enough. Yamina Ansari is part of a group of immigration lawyers who had been advocating for the special family program. We reached her in Toronto. Yamina, how many people do you and your group know of who are trying to get into Canada through this special extended family program? I think that's what's most disheartening, Megan, is that just between myself and the four lawyers that I'm working in, working with, we already know well over a thousand potential applicants. And the fact that this program caps out at a thousand applicants means that there's going to be hundreds, um, if not thousands, of Palestinian Canadian families that are left out in the dust, essentially excluded, worried about their family members back home in Gaza. So how has the news of Canada accepting 1,000 applicants landing with family members? Quite frankly, they're terrified. Uh, The program is opening on Jan 9th, and we still don't have full details exactly about how the portal is going to look. We don't have full details about the application forms that they need to submit um, or what the exact eligibility requirements are. And then you have this thousand-person cap moving over people's heads. So they're really frightened because they know that they have to get this right and they have one chance to get this right because everyone's going to be racing to their laptop the minute it opens. But at the same time, they don't really have a complete picture of what exactly do they need to submit to get this right, to, to be within this thousand person um, quota. Now, the government says it is incredibly difficult to get anyone across the Rafa border at this point. We've reached out to the Minister of Immigration for comment, but what is your message to him? I, as, as somebody who who spent the briefest time uh, working in the diplomatic sphere in Canada, put my utmost faith um, in the federal government and the people who advocate for our country at the highest levels. And I'm confident that if this is put on a priority list and this is put at the discussion table, um, that they can work something out with Israel. And and a message to him, what would it be? Sorry, I'm just thinking. There's so many. There's so many different things that I could say. Um, this is painful, that these are real people, that this isn't a conflict about two countries or two religions. Um, this is a question of people that we love who are in Gaza Mm -hmm. and who are deeply connected with Canadians, who are deeply connected to Canadian citizens and permanent residents. And what can we do to get these people to a safe place? That we really need to look beyond simple political religious lines um, and and see the humanity in the situation. Do you think enough is being done? No. Enough is definitely not being done. Even relative to what we have seen the government do and how they have risen to the occasion, relative to Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan. We've seen the government do far more, accept far more people, waive fees, provide settlement support. None of that is being done for any of these folks. So even based on what we know the government can do and what they've done for similar people in conflict areas, we know that they're not stepping up to the table in the way that they have done before. According to Global Affairs Canada, Canada has gotten 705 Canadians, permanent residents, and their eligible family members to Egypt. Is it even realistic at this point that Canada can get an additional 1,000 people out? I think that's a good question, Um, but I think we won't know unless we try. Mm -hmm. 
In early December, we spoke with an Ottawa woman who was asking the Canadian government to get her extended family out of Gaza, including her 10-month-old nephew. She still doesn't know if she'll be able to get them out. What stories have you been hearing from people who have loved ones in Gaza? The most heartbreaking one that I encountered this week actually was a woman in Canada who is trying to get her sister and her sister's family out. And her sister has two sons, and one of the sons is 18 years old, and the other one is 22 years old. So what that means is that the 18-year-old son will be able to leave, and the 22-year-old son won't. Mm. So it puts people in almost this this Sophie's Choice situation Mm -hmm. of, um, well, should they leave behind one of the sons to, to God knows what, or should the whole family stay behind? And ask, putting families in this situation is this is a policy decision that Canada has made. This is not a question of um, Israeli border guards and the choices that they make. This is a decision that Canada has made to put families in this situation. If there are people listening now in a similar situation, what, what's your message to them? So first of all, the government of Canada has set up an um, alert system where you can sign up to stay updated on everything that's happening on this program. So I would recommend that everybody who is looking to bring a family member over immediately sign up for that. Also, the group that I'm a part of, uh, which is a group of immigration and refugee lawyers called the Gaza Family Reunification Project, we have put together a toolkit to help people apply for this program. And if they have any tricky situations that don't align uh, perfectly with what the requirements of the program are, I think that they need to immediately go and speak to an immigration or refugee lawyer who is well-versed in this situation because they have until Monday to get all their ducks in a row to make sure that they're the first thousand people in line. Yamina, thanks so much for speaking with me and uh, thanks for the work you're doing. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Yamina Ansari is part of a group of immigration lawyers called the Gaza Family Reunification Project. She was in Toronto. Now, we reached out to immigration refugees and citizenship minister Mark Miller for comment. In a statement, his office said, in part, that the 1,000-person cap, quote, takes into consideration the volatility on the ground and the difficulty that Canada and like-minded countries are having in moving people from Gaza to Egypt. Unquote. It also says the minister will continue to monitor the situation. <laughs> and he's dead. What? Like if he was in a horror movie, you'd never say, I'll be right back. Because then you don't. It took 96 years for the earliest version of Mickey Mouse to enter the public domain, and less than one day for the first trailer for a Mickey Mouse slasher movie to drop. Steamboat Willie introduced the character of Mickey Mouse in 1928, and now the Canadian independent film Mickey Mouse's Trap will be the very first horror film to legally use that image. We reached its director, Jamie Bailey, in Toronto. Jamie, you could have made a horror movie about a lot of different things. Why Mickey Mouse? I love Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse is fantastic. We all grew up with Mickey Mouse. Uh, Like, the opportunity to take my childhood... Mickey Mouse and turn him into a a serial murderer, how could I resist? (laughs) Okay, can you give us a brief overview of the concept behind Mickey's mousetrap? Yeah, we we didn't make it overly complicated. This is not Shakespeare. Basically, uh, uh, it's like a Chuck E. Cheese, uh, Dave and Buster's kind of environment where 
uh, they throw a birthday party for uh, one of their friends, uh, and they, they're doing it overnight. And uh, somebody becomes possessed by Mickey Mouse, Steamboat Willie Mick, Mickey Mouse, and starts killing people. And that's basically all you need to know. <laughs> okay, okay. Now, last month, Disney issued a statement about Steamboat Willie, who's the earliest version of Mickey Mouse, entering the public domain. And they said, quote, we will, of course, continue to protect our rights in the more modern version of Mickey Mouse. And we will work to safeguard against consumer confusion caused by unauthorized uses of Mickey, unquote. So far, only the 1928 version of Mickey has entered the public domain. What have you done to make sure your movie stays inside the limits of the law? Well, we're uh, definitely consulting. Uh, we've consulted lawyers along the way to make sure that our version is the 1928 uh, Steamboat Willie version of Mickey Mouse and not the modern-day version that we all come to know. And this is this is a parody. And we're trying to stay within sign the letter of the law to make sure that we're using something that is now public domain that every, everyone should be able to use. That's uh, happened with many other projects, with Wizard of Oz, Winnie the Pooh. Uh, Peter Pan just lost its uh, copyright. The Winnie the Pooh movie that came out like two years ago, The Blood and Honey. Um, they never got sued for that one. Um, so we're, we're just really trying to make sure that we're doing it that, to the letter of the law and using something that is in public domain that anyone can use. And how is the 1928 version of Mickey different from the more modern one? Uh, he has different eyes. Uh, he wears black gloves. He doesn't wear white gloves. And basically the only thing that we really do in this film is the the person that plays Mickey Mouse is wearing a Mickey Mouse mask. So we made that mask look uh, as, as much as it can uh, to Steamboat Willie. 1928 Steamboat Willie, Mickey Mouse. Right. So you've taken all these steps, but we all know that Disney has pretty deep pockets and, yep. a, and a very big legal team. Are you, do, I heard. Are you worried you still might get a call from Disney's lawyers? Well, absolutely. Yes, we, we, it's not like we have aren't prepared prepare for that. Like, obviously, this is a thing that can happen. Disney has a, one or two lawyers. Uh, what I can say is that we absolutely love Disney. We're not trying to do anything to offend them or to degrade Mickey Mouse in any way, shape, or form. We're trying to play with the character. And I will say now, uh, live on radio, uh, that's uh, Disney, if you're listening, I'd be more than happy to direct the next three Marvel movies for free if you do not sue us. <laughs> Why was it so important to you to have this trailer ready to go the moment Steamboat Willie entered the public domain? Well, we had a suspicion that uh, people would pick up on it. And oh my Lord, they certainly did. If you're going to do it, why not do it on the day that the copyright expired? And my Lord, we've gotten such a response. It's insane. Like the world is now aware of this film. Had you been planning it for a long time? Like when did when did the idea strike you to do this? I would say like the middle of last year. So like it wasn't that long ago. Uh, we knew this was happening and, uh, you know, we saw Blood and Honey and uh, we were like, okay, well, Mickey Mouse should be probably the next thing to, to go here. So uh, we jumped on it. We wrote a script. We shot everything um, in September um, and uh, we would go. We, we had it all ready to go for January 1st. What was your budget? Not very much. Like we made this for $10. <laughs> well, probably a little more than ten dollars. Yes, but I mean, we like uh, I'm an independent filmmaker in Canada. Um, I use all my own equipment. Uh, mm -hmm. Simon Phillips, who plays Mickey Mouse, uh, he's been in like Fubar, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger thing. He's in a uh, second last Bruce Willis movie. Uh, we're just we're huge fans of, of of film, and we make these silly little slasher movies. We had Deinfluencer come out a year ago. We've we've already shot two sequels to that series. We just want to make movies. That's all we want is to make movies. As you mentioned, your movie's getting a lot of publicity, but there are other contenders out there already. There's another Mickey horror movie in the works uh -huh. and at least two video games, one I believe entitled Infestation 88. Uh, are, you, are you ready to deal with the competition? Yeah, I, I was aware that another person announced that they're going to make a movie, but we've actually finished our movie. Our movie's ready to go. Um, so yeah, I'm not really too concerned. And I obviously, I mean, after the response that we got yesterday, there's clearly a demand for this. Everyone have a stab at it. It's not limited to us. Anyone can do this. That's the way it should be. Now, this is a character people associate with childhood and innocence and fun. When you came up with the idea and started shooting it, I mean, at any point, did you feel like you were doing something wrong by associating Dear Mickey Mouse with death and murder? Uh, no, not really. Uh, like, I mean, obviously, we get to reimagine the character. Nobody has seen this character this way, so it's just kind of fun. And that's it's this entire movie is tongue in cheek. You know, we do nothing to degrade Mickey Mouse. I don't think it's just meant to be a fun ride. Now you 
got a lot of reaction. Has any of it been negative, though? Oh, well, yes. I mean, of course, you know, it's uh, it's quite great. We actually love uh, the negative feedback. It just drives more interest. And it, there seems to be, you know, a market for people that wants to hate this kind of stuff. And that's the ironic thing that you see all the time is that people say, like, this looks like trash. I can't wait to see it. Will people be able to see, see soon uh, Mickey's mousetrap? Yes. We've uh, said uh, March 1st. Uh, but it might even happen sooner than that. The, f- the film is done, and now we are mm-hmm. talking to distributors, and we're coming up with an exact plan of attack. And uh, the world has gotten back to us. Uh, all these distributors from around the world are now want to uh, distribute this movie. So it, it, will it be a th- theatrical release, or will it be on an online streaming? We don't know right now, but we will know that shortly, and we will make another announcement shortly. Thanks so much for speaking with me today, Jamie. Good luck. No worries. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Jamie Bailey is the director of Mickey's Mousetrap. We reached him in Toronto. Say what you will about Grace, but she has pluck. I say pluck because the 10-year-old from Edinburgh had the courage to speak truth to power about a heartbreaking snack-related injustice. And because, as a result, she's about to have a lot more pluck. Specifically, sheep's pluck, which, as I'm sure you know, is what you call the internal organs found in the chest cavity of a carcass, which, as I'm sure you also know, is a key ingredient of haggis. Let me back up a titch. You see, Grace has a favorite flavor of crisps, and that flavor is haggis. The savory Scottish pudding featuring the heart, liver, and lungs of a sheep cooked in the animal's stomach in a glorious tribute to waste not, want not living. As in, I do not want that. But Grace does. So when her favorite haggis and black pepper potato chips were demoted to the status of seasonal snack last year, she was hungry for justice. Grace wrote to their manufacturer on her best mermaid-themed stationery, indicating in no uncertain terms that if they were unable to grant her year-round access to the crisps, she would be, quote, sad, followed by a devastating frowny face. The tactics were extreme but effective. And henceforth, haggis crisps will be available no matter the season, particularly to Grace, who has been gifted a year's supply. I hope she's enjoying them, knowing she took a bad situation and made it a little more awful. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Spooky season has been over for a while, but you're about to hear from a lawyer who still has goosebumps over something that happened to his client. Actually, it may even be something that has happened to you. So brace yourself. This is about to get scary. In October, Cynthia Kelly was doing her grocery shopping and was struck by the Halloween spirit. There at the checkout was a Reese's peanut butter pumpkin. The packaging on the Halloween treat showed a smiling chocolate jack-o'-lantern Only, when she opened it, the Reese's treat had no such decoration. Now, she is a part of a class action lawsuit that accuses Hershey of false advertising. Anthony Russo is representing Miss Kelly. We reached him in Delray Beach, Florida. Anthony, why go to all this trouble over some chocolate? Well, we've been doing this for quite a while, these type of suits that have just um, recently come to our attention and for us it's really about change it's about doing something 
for consumer awareness and helping the proverbial little guy um, go up against the the big bad you know corporate entity that is feels like they can do whatever they want to do with no reprise from anyone else. You're asking for $5 million in this case. Is disappointment over a faceless Reese's treat really worth that much money? Well, the $5 million, we get asked that all the time. Just for understanding, you know, uh, in our judicial system, in order to get into certain courts, you have to plead certain things. So in order to get into this federal court to be properly, the case to be properly addressed, there is a minimum requirement of certain things, one being a minimum amount of, of amount in controversy, which is a number. So just a number we plead right. to be safe. Or I know when a lot of folks see it and we get a lot of pushback on it in the media and also especially out of the country, when you get to these European countries, they, they like to say, oh, look at these Americans. The lady, um, you know, didn't like her chocolate, so she's suing for five million dollars. Right. right. It's a little more of an explanation than that. Yeah. So the the money, if you were to win the case, the money would uh, go to a number of different people, I assume. The way it works is this: if we are successful in getting a class certification, meaning the judge feels that there are enough people who suffered a similar damage that's not distinguishable from the others. In other words. Everybody who bought that particular item is similarly uh, injured or, or, you know, situated for the, you know, for the damages. Then what they'll do is they'll put out a a class, they'll certify a class, and then we open up for a certain amount of time to anybody who has, you know, been been injured the same way or has, you know, been a victim of the same thing. And then there's no telling how many will come in, and that's where everybody will get either a voucher or, you know, money, you know, for what they spent, you know, as long as there's certain proof, certain, they can prove that they did, you know, buy the items or, you know, were were similarly harmed by the items. So that's kind of what determines it. Right. Now, we reached out to Hershey, and they declined to comment on pending litigation, but similar cases have been dismissed by the courts. What makes you think this one will succeed? You know, having been doing this for 30-plus years, um, I get, if not dozens of calls a week, I get hundreds of calls a month for different types of potential class action cases. And I'd probably say 98 or 99% of them we don't take because we just don't see it, according to our standards, we don't see it as something that rises to the level of our putting, you know, passing a smell test, you know, mm-hmm. for lack of a better expression mm-hmm. for us. So we turn down most of the cases of the the handful we do file. You know, we had our McDonald's and Wendy's case, which got dismissed. We have our Burger King case, which has proceeded on. We have our um, Arby's case. So the cases we filed, some of them get dismissed, but in other times when, you know, like our Burger King case, Judge Altman in Miami, he saw it our way, and, and he allowed us so far to proceed um, moving forward. That doesn't mean it can't get knocked out at other cases. So there's a plenty of opportunities for it to get knocked out of out of, out of court, and, and a lot of them don't succeed. Mm-hmm. But that really doesn't deter us from, if it's something we feel strongly about, it doesn't deter us from, from moving forward with it. For you to win this case, you'd need to prove that a, quote, reasonable consumer would feel deceived by the packaging. How reasonable do you think your client's reaction is? Well, from from what I'm seeing and feedback I'm getting, I'm getting a lot of different feedback. Some people are, are quite offended by well, our suit, which is just normal. Not everyone's going to like what we do. Others are, you know, hey, this happened to me and I never thought of doing anything. I just for lack of a better expression, just took it and ate it. Um, but for us, it, it's it's more of a, hey, today it's a 2 or $3 piece of chocolate or a $5, um, you know, menu item at a fast food place. Tomorrow, you know, it's your vehicle that you use to, you know, drive your children around in and get back and forth to work. Tomorrow could be your home. You know, if this isn't curbed, you, you know the old expression, you give, a, give an inch, they'll take a mile. My experience with corporations is they are bottom line profit, and if they can push the envelope and increase profits, they will 
You were a guest on our program in August and uh, to talk about a separate class action lawsuit that you're involved in, which you, you just alluded to, the case against Burger King um, and suing them for depicting the Whopper as bigger and more appealing than it actually is. Is this kind of misrepresentation becoming more common in your view? However you look at it, fortunately or unfortunately, um, it is. I know when there's a lot of other, you know, more pressing issues in the world. Sometimes this may be, you know, unfortunately, you know, a time that people are pursuing things like this. But, you know, fortunately, the you know, way I look at it is that, you know, we still have what I consider to be um, the best legal system in the world um, for leveling the playing field and allowing, you know, the average person to stand up against a corporation. If you look statistically, there's there's a, a large uptick in the amount of class actions that are being filed, and, and it, it goes across the board on different types of issues. In this case, what would a win look like to you and your client? First and foremost, change. Um, stop doing what we're saying, you're, what, you know, what our client is saying you did. Um, once we can prove it, um, stop doing it, and then reimburse anybody who has felt like they didn't get what they what they paid for. Okay. Anthony, thanks very much for speaking with me. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Anthony Russo is a trial attorney and founding partner at the Russo firm. We reached him in Delray Beach, Florida. Pain in the neck sometimes. That's how one head of the FDA described Dr. Sidney M. Wolf, the consumer advocate who died Monday at the age of 86. But the pain he inflicted on regulators provided relief to consumers. He was a tireless foe of unsafe or ineffective medical treatments, and his work led dozens of them to be banned. From our archives, this is Dr. Sidney M. Wolf speaking with As It Happens host Mary Lou Finley in 2003 about his fight to ban dietary supplements containing ephedra. The more important question is why the FDA didn't take this step two years ago. Uh, we filed a petition when there were 81 deaths reported the FDA and ephedra users more than two years ago to ban uh, ephedra. The FDA had all the legal authority it needed then, the same legal authority it has now, and it had enough scientific evidence, deaths, heart attacks, strokes, to ban it. And the question is, why did it take so long? I think the answer is pressure from the industry. Instead of acting as part of the public health service, which the Food and Drug Administration is, they acted as a sort of life extension for the ephedra industry. Ironically, they waited until the last major manufacturer of ephedra products announced two weeks ago that they no longer were going to manufacture it, and that's Metabolife. So the FDA's action is really way after the marketplace has declared this substance is way too dangerous. The insurance companies that insure the companies that have made ephedra have backed out of insuring them because millions and millions of dollars are being paid out to families of people who were killed by this product. And that's it. the FDA should be acting before all of these deaths have occurred instead of afterwards. When we filed our petition, there were 81 deaths. There are 155 deaths reported now, and the actual number is much higher because companies aren't even required to report these kinds of things to the government. People are dying from what? Stroke? Strokes, heart attacks, arrhythmias. Caused by uh, right, caused right, by right. recommended use, or do you, is most it people the, who are not using it as recommended? Most of the deaths, injuries, heart attacks, strokes are in who are using exactly the recommended dose. Hmm. Why do you think it did take the FDA so long? Because they they say that this was uh, it's a new law that permits them to do this. And the law, was... There's no new law. The same law that was in existence in 1994 that was in existence two years ago when we filed our petition is the law that they use today. So there's no new law that has allowed them to do what they did today that they should have done two years ago. But they, they hinted that they had to take... No, uh... they hinted that they would like to have a new law passed, but that's irrelevant to what they did today. From our archives, that was Dr. Sidney M. Wolf in conversation with Mary Lou Finley in 2003. Dr. Wolf died Monday at the age of 86. 
There's been little reprieve for Quebec's ERs. For most of the past few weeks, capacity rates have surged past 100%, with some ERs reaching around 200% capacity. The problem is not new, and at a recent press conference, Health Minister Christian Dubé had a message for the public. Please avoid the ER unless you are really sick. That message didn't sit well with Laura Sang. She's a family physician in Montreal. Dr. Sang spoke with our colleagues there. Typically, people don't go to the ER for no reason. Usually, it's because there's something very seriously wrong. Uh, from my experience in my practice, most of my patients would rather do the opposite and will do everything they can to avoid going to the ER. And I think that this issue of ER overcrowding is really um, a sign that our healthcare system is struggling and reflects a much bigger picture that needs attention. All right. So what, first of all, let's break that down. What are some of the risks involved if people do uh, not go to the ER, if they are feeling sick? As you say, most don't go unless it's absolutely necessary. So from my experience, um, it really depends on the person. But if we're talking about sort of our most vulnerable, so people with a lot of chronic conditions, especially respiratory conditions like asthma and COPD, that if they start out with a pneumonia, they can progress very quickly and deteriorate rapidly. So at least having the opportunity to go before they get to a much severe state, I think is important. Um, I know that sometimes certain conditions like an appendicitis or heart attacks or other things, they may take time to fully present and it might not be obvious exactly what is going on. I don't want people to be discouraged from going to the ER when the care they, to get the care that they need because delaying care for urgent conditions can result in much more adverse outcomes and even fatal outcomes. Now, Christian Dupé, as well as the public health director, both of them said that, you know, if you need to go to the ER, go to the ER, but maybe start out by going to a clinic, even going to your pharmacy for help. First, call 811. What's wrong with that approach uh, before actually heading to the ER? So I would say that there's nothing wrong with that approach. I think it's a great approach to kind of go through the flow of the system as much as possible, but those things have to be in place. People have to, you know, be able to reach their pharmacist. They have to be able to reach services like 811, walk-in clinics, their family doctor, if they have one, to be able to have someone assess them and ask the right questions and decide, you know, what sort of symptoms can wait and what sort of symptoms require urgent attention. I don't think it's fair necessarily to expect um, people to know that for themselves. They're not trained on what to look for. And I think a lot of the time, many people can do very well in the outpatient setting with those kinds of supports. But if there were viable alternatives, I think a lot less people would end up going to the ER because they would be able to have treatment in a more timely fashion and consult when they're not as sick, leading to better outcomes and less medical care overall. Laura Sang is a family physician in Montreal. She spoke with CBC's Deborah Arbeck. Nolan is boldly going where no one has gone before. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. This is, of course, the theme music to the original Star Trek series, which first aired back in 1966. Ms. Nolan really loved this show. So now her family is sending her into space to live out her Star Trek dream, or at least part of her. The Vancouver woman died in 2011 at the age of 86, and while space burials aren't unprecedented, her family has spent more than a decade trying to achieve something new, a first-of-its-kind deep space mission that will allow her ashes to eternally orbit the sun. Now, next week's Enterprise flight of the Vulcan Centaur rocket is set to fulfill those dreams. Rod Nolan is Gloria Nolan's son. We reached him in White Rock, B.C. Rod, 
What do you think the moment will be like for you when the Vulcan Centaur launches into space with your mother's ashes? Well, it will be um, the end of this journey, as it were. Um, it's been a long time, and we're, we're really happy that it's come to fruition, that they made it, uh, made it work out. I think to understand why you're doing this, we need to understand who your mother was. What did Star Trek mean to her? There was something important about it to her in as much as there was, a, a, I guess, a fairness, a, a kindness, a, a, you know, a fair, kinder, gentler future as opposed to the, the, just the way the world has been. And um, that resonated with her. She was a, uh, she was a believer in, in, uh, in fairness and, you know, people being treated with respect and dignity and kindness. And was that, were those qualities she felt were reflected in Star Trek? Yes, absolutely. The the show and Gene Roddenberry's uh, viewpoint of it, you know, sort of his take on uh, the foundation of the show generally was one of um, openness, you know, and, and acceptance. And uh, th- these things resonated with her. And so it was one of the reasons that she followed the show when the Next Generation series came out, I think there was a, she was reinvigorated with that, mm. um, in part because she was a big fan of uh, Patrick Stewart, who played Captain Jean-Luc mm-hmm. Picard, to the degree where she had a, a large poster, like a 36 by 24 poster on her living room wall <laughs> of Jean-Luc Picard. <laughs> Uh, along with, um, she collected um, action figures, Star Trek action figures. So a serious Trekkie. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, her ashes won't be the only ones on board. Can you tell us who else is going to be joining her in deep space? James Doohan, who was the, uh, who was played Scotty on the original series. He's a Canadian actor. Uh, Nichelle... Nichols, who was played Uhura on the original series, um, and uh, Magil, um, Magil Barrett Roddenberry, who was um, Gene Roddenberry's wife. She was in a number of the different series, both in the original as uh, in the original series as well as in Deep Space Nine and um, uh, Next Generation, etc. What do you think your mother would make of of being projected out into deep space with that cast of characters? Oh, she'd be quite tickled about that, I think. Um, she was a believer in reincarnation and didn't believe that our our uh, shell was us. Mm. you know it was just the, it was just the container that we were living in. and uh, when we die, we leave that container, and she just wanted her container burned. That's the way she put it. She was really pragmatic about death, and because of her belief in reincarnation, had uh, no qualms about it at all. She was looking forward to what the next journey was because she felt like she was at the end of this one, as she said. This is part of something called a Memorial Space Flight Mission, which has been going on since the 90s. But this is Mm -hmm. the first time uh, that this mission will reach deep space. What does something like that cost? Ah, the price is uh, twelve thousand five hundred U.S. So not it, cheap. You know, not cheap. Um, it, it's not. You know, it was one of those things that I, I'm sure our mother would have uh, had we discussed it with her prior to her passing. She would have said, "Oh, don't spend the money on that. That's just a waste." But at the same time, because the money came out of her estate, right? And and, I, and we would have said to her, "Well, you're paying for it." So and. She would have probably laughed at that and thought it was pretty funny and said, go ahead. I'm curious. This was a family decision, I assume, um, you and your siblings. Why, why was it so important to you to do this? Uh, for me personally, well, I'm a, I'm a space nut, as was my mom. We were kind of uh, two peas in a pod that way in that we were interested in science and space. Um, she took it a little further with regard to believing in ex- extraterrestrials and paranormal stuff and mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. But um, for me, th- this is uh, it's just a neat thing that is a wonderful end for her life. We did her service at the planetarium in Vancouver oh, wow. um, with a w- and ended in a star show. Um, <laughs> That's great. And I made a video. 
uh, of photos of her life, you know, sort of going through chronologically. And um, one of the shots, my uh, my oldest son, who is a bit of a video editor, he actually has her beaming up at the end of the video. <laughs> um, and then it goes to uh, um, a Star Trek, the, the uh, Next Generation uh, <laughs> intro, with the spaceship going off into deep space, going to warp speed. So... I understand you won't be in Florida for the launch, but we'll be watching it from Ottawa, where you'll be at the time. What will you be thinking about as it takes off? Um, the success of it. It was booked in 2012. We're, we're a long time down the road. And as, as a, friend, uh, a friend said, uh, quite amusing statement, he said, your mom gets to rest in space. And it's a uh, it's a neat thing. That's you know mostly it's just really cool and and crazy and and suits what she was uh, as a human being, who was she was just open to everything and had a wonderful positive and um, uplifting attitude toward life and people and it's uh, the final frontier really is to go where no woman has gone before. <laughs> <laughs> Rod, thanks very much for speaking with me today. Good luck. Thank you. Rod Nolan is Gloria Nolan's son, and he was in White Rock, B.C. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following The World at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app. Thanks for listening. I'm Megan Williams. And I'm Samira Moyedin. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.